Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 this morning as we continue our study through the Bible and the New Testament currently in Philippians. The title this morning is Be Anxious for Nothing. Be Anxious for Nothing. And we probably don't have any worriers here this morning, so this will be for everybody outside. None of you get anxious, you know, about things. If anybody had any reason to worry, it was the Apostle Paul. His Christian friends that he loved so much at Philippi were disagreeing with one another. And he wasn't there to help them. Now, it was too ladies, two Christian sisters that were involved in some dispute. Now, we don't know who Euodius and Syntyche is. They were arguing, like I said, about something. But it was bringing, they're arguing among themselves, was bringing division into the church along with the potential division at Philippi. So Paul had to face this division among the believers at Rome. And, and, and added to these worries was the possibility that Paul might die soon. He's in prison waiting for his outcome. So it, it, again, if anybody had anything to worry about, it was Paul. But he didn't. He didn't worry. Instead, he, instead, he took time to tell us the secret and the victory, the secret victory, of worry, over worry. This chapter starts with a great show of affection. They were his dearly loved, beloved. He didn't just like them, he loved them. He didn't just love them, he loved them dearly. Look at verse 1 now of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren... My joy and crowns, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So he calls them my brethren. These words tell us that the people he's addressing are Christians. They're saved. He calls them my beloved. This says the church was dear to Paul. And he used these words twice, showing how dear and great his love was for these believers. He says they were longed for. In verse 1, he says, and longed for brethren. That is, you know, a person wants to be with those that he loves. So it's not surprising that Paul has a great desire to be with the believers in Philippi. And he says they're his joy. My joy, he says. The church was a great joy to Paul. He enjoyed the Christians there. And if you enjoy being with the ungodly more than you do with the saints... It might be a sign that you may not be a saint yourself. But there are some Christians who have such a bad disposition that no saint enjoins being around them. But that's the exception and not the rule. True saints will enjoy being with true saints more than with the ungodly. Jesus said, by this all know that, we, that you are my disciples. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
The church was a prize to Paul. He called it my crown. And the word crown here refers to the garland given to winners at a race. And so Paul speaks of the Philippian believers as his reward, his trophy. And Paul's love for the church didn't stop him from teaching them, from giving them instruction. And as parents, we could learn a lesson from this. Even though we love our children, they still, we, we need to still teach them about responsibility. His instructions to them were stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Now, stand fast is translated from one Greek word with several meanings. First, stand faithfully. Stand fast means to be steadfast, which is to be loyal and faithful. Second, stand fast also means to stand firm, stand strong, stand steady. This standing firm involves a firmness of position. Like a strong tree, it's not easily moved or blown over. And the firmness... It's, it's the firmness that keeps you from being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Third, stand fast means to stand fearlessly, afraid of nothing. This means you stand your ground and you don't run or bow down to the enemy. You don't run from the enemy, you don't bow down to the enemy, you don't give in to the enemy. And this standing involves courage. Now, it's not easy to stand in some places. You may be the only one standing, but you are to stand upright for Christ anyway. How do you stand fast? Paul said in verse 1, in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. And in the Lord describes where this standing is to take place. It's standing for Jesus Christ. There's too many Christians bowing down today. Running away from, giving into, giving up, shutting up when Paul says stand up. Too many Christians bowing down to the world, giving into their ways, giving into the pressure of wokeness and progressive, so-called progressiveness. Afraid to take that stand for Jesus Christ because we might be ridiculed or laughed at. Paul said stand fast, stand firm, do not give up, do not give in, stand up. Verse 2, Paul says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Everybody knows about this, dis this dis uh, disagreement between these two ladies. Again, two sisters in the congregation. Paul didn't need anybody to tell him about the sad details of what was going on. These situations unfortunately happen way too often. Words are said between two people over some, something that's usually petty, like a difference of opinion about the color or, or paint of carpet or, or how to do ministry, or the person's suggestion was rejected. Well, if they're not going to take my advice, they're not going to listen to me, forget it, I ain't saying anything anymore. And pretty soon, they're, they're, you know, we're not talking to each other. They look the other way when they see each other in church. They, buy, they, you know, they, they try to avoid each other. And then their spouses are drawn into the, into the squabble. Now we got teams. Then it goes to the next phase. Now we got supporters. Now we got this. Now we got you know, two camps. We got this side that believes they're wrong. We got this side that believes they're wrong. 
and it becomes a big deal. We laugh, but it's a serious thing because it does happen. You get the two sizes. Personality differences, doctrinal differences, and technical differences, they're all fuel for the fire. And with the whole church being hardheads, the church's testimony suffers. It's a bad witness. Because those who are saved, they see what's going on, and they're just disappointed. And in some churches, the work that's going on in the church comes to a stop. Because nobody can agree to anything. Every issue, every suggestion for moving the ministry forward, hey, it becomes a tug of war. Let's do it this way. No, let's do it that way. Back and forth, back and forth, and nothing gets done. Or it takes longer to get done. And then some of the people, hey, they'll just stop getting involved. No, forget it, man. I ain't going to do nothing. And then they'll leave, looking for the more friendly church. Notice here that Paul names names. Sometimes the only way to deal with some of these problems is to name names and force the people that are involved in the argument to face their personal responsibility for what's happened. Paul wasn't tiptoeing around this problem anymore. He wasn't saying, oh, pretty please, kiss and make up. He suddenly and he bluntly confronted the two sisters. Now picture the, 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 the reaction in Philippi as we... Learned last week. The church had welcomed Epaphroditus back home. And, and, and he calls a meeting for the first reading of Paul's letter. Everybody's there. Everybody's excited to hear what, what their pastor had to say. The place is packed out. Epaphroditus or one of the other elders, they break the seal on the scroll showing that the letter you know, hadn't been tampered with. And he starts to read. And as the letter is read, you know, here and there were little hints that Paul knew about this squabble between these two ladies in the church. You Odious and Syntyche, they probably start to squirm and, you know, they're getting uncomfortable. And then they look at each other from across the congregation, give each other a dirty look. <laughs> and then they look away. Then they give Epaphroditus a dirty look for thinking, well, maybe he went and he tattletailed to Paul about our argument. Well, I'm just going to give him a piece of my mind. And then they heard Paul's words being read about receiving Epaphroditus in the Lord. And then to their shock, they hear their names mentioned. He says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now they're probably, you know, cringing and getting down in their chair. Or on the floor, wherever they were sitting. Everybody probably now turned and looked at these two women. And they probably felt like slithering out the back door. And the room now was dead silent, filled with tension and awkwardness. And these two women's faces were probably blushing red. Even though Paul had called out these two sisters, instead of harshly getting on their case, instead of harshly ordering them to stop their feuding and then giving them a stern warning of what would happen if they didn't, the Philippians heard a gentle plea of Paul saying, say, in the name of the Lord, I implore you. In the name of the Lord, I implore you. I implore you. The word implore means to call near, to invite 
So he's saying, ladies, I'm inviting you, I'm imploring you to be of the same mind. And this is necessary, a necessary requirement if Christians are going to live in harmony. And then Paul quickly changed the subject. But his goal was not, his goal was still the same. And his words applied to us this morning just as it did to the church at Philippi that we're reading about. And he's telling us, be the same mind in the Lord. Being of the same mind in the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that we, we can't have different ideas about doctrinal manners as long as they're not the essentials of the faith. We can agree to disagree that, okay, I believe in the, in the, the, the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. I can believe that it comes in the mid. Some can say it's going to come at the end. Fine, we can all agree because that's not an essential of faith. We're not going to go to heaven based on what we believe when the rapture is going to take place. But when it says that Jesus Christ is the only one that can save, hey, there cannot be any differing in that by anybody at any time. That is an essential of the faith. And usually when we have these little petty disagreements about Scripture, that isn't a, when we get to heaven, we're not going to care, so what? We made it. That's the main thing I care about. So, again, these squabbles about petty things, they they can destroy the church, relationships. And so, again, uh, being of one mind, like I said, doesn't mean that we, also, it doesn't uh, mean that we tolerate doctrinal error about the person of Christ or the person and work of the Holy Spirit or other essentials of faith. When Paul wrote to Rome, he encouraged others to allow room for other people's views on eating ritually, un, uh, ritually uh, unclean food. But he was ready to fight tooth and nail for the freedom of Gentile Christians from Judaistic legalism. In other words, he was ready to stand and fight against the idea that, that, that Gentiles had to become Jews and be circumcised in order to be Christians. Well, he fought toe-to-toe against that. Look at verse 3. He says, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with, men in the go- with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul was wise enough to know that even though he was an apostle and he was the spiritual father of the church at Philippi, his counsel to Euodius and Syntyche wasn't enough to solve the problem. They were going to need additional help to settle their differences. If their disagreement had been going on for a long time and had become especially bitter, there would be real damage. Plus the shock of them hearing their names read in church as being the ones involved in the quarrel, how humiliating that must have been for them. How humiliated they must have been. You know, if they would have known that for the rest of the time, Wherever the gospel went and this letter, this letter followed, their names would be read in church just like it was this morning. <laughs> in connection with a quarrel that had caused a sour taste to an otherwise happy and Christ-like fellowship of God's people. Paul knew that a humiliating sense of shame could hinder them from ever serving again. 
their, their feelings of embarrassment, again, called out in the church, their names mentioned. This embarrassment might cause them to hide, unable to ever face their brothers and sisters again or to continue serving the Lord. Or the ladies might get mad at Paul and be furious with him and Epaphroditus. Whatever the cause might be, Paul chose his true companion, as it says there in verse 3. He says, my true companion or yoke fellow. Okay, yoke fellow. Uh, he asked him to do whatever he could to soften the blow with these two ladies. Now, we don't know who Paul's true companion was mentioned here. This yoke fellow. The word yoke fellow, again, it's used in the King James Version. The word yoke fellow, though, refers to someone who shares a common burden. It's the picture of two oxen pulling the same load. Now, some say that yoke fellow is a proper name because it's, it's Sizigus. It's translated to yoke fellow, but Sizigus was a proper name, so it might have been the name of, of, a, of a man. But Paul knew that he couldn't count on him to work with the two women and bring them back to fellowship with each other and with the Lord. He knew he could count on him to do that. Bring them back to fellowship with each other and with the Lord. Paul tried to soften the blow by mentioning how he had worked with him, Clement, and other fellow workers. And it, it was like Paul not to dwell on the problem. So many times we just dwell on the problem. Paul dealt with the problem, and then he tried to get his readers' thoughts on something higher. To think about higher things, more important things. So after mentioning the two ladies and Clement in a good way, he said of the two, notice, their names are in the book of life. Notice how he did that. He took the focus now off the, off the corner and said, hey, their names are in the book of life. Taking them out of that embarrassing moment from that trivial moment to the eternal. The thought of God Knowing each of us by name and lovingly writing our names down has to lead Christians from the petty things to the more honorable things. Verse 4. And then, then he said, as a result of that, thinking of your name is in a book of life, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, well, I will say rejoice. He wanted them to be happy. Paul's answer to all of life's problems is the Lord. And it's still the answer to all of life's problems today. The Lord God. In a setting of rejoicing in the Lord, all arguments, all problems die. Troubling thoughts are overcome by thoughts of the Lord's love, His goodness, His wisdom, His power, and His care. And that the Lord is involved in everything that concerns us. And if, the, Lord's thought, if the, if the Lord is involved in everything that concerns us, how can we not think of the Lord? And how can we not rejoice in the Lord? We know, and we've probably all experienced, that life can get ugly at times. Life can be ugly at times. And that ugliness can be many things. It can be illnesses, it can be financial problems, a loss of a job, it can be an, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Sometimes we're called to bear these things, to go through these things that crush us. And we don't understand why. Painful sorrows may cause us to want to die, to not want to live anymore. 
regrets and remorse may tear our hearts apart, tear them out and, and haunt us and torment us, causing us a lot of painful suffering. Paul's answer is always the same. Think about the Lord. Now that doesn't mean we're to rejoice in the thing that overwhelms us, because that would be silly. But we are to rejoice in the Lord. And the Lord can restore the years that the locusts have eaten, Joel 2.25 says. And the Lord can heal the brokenhearted and bind up the wounds, Psalm 147.1 says. And He can make evil become a way of grace. God can put together those shattered and broken lives if you'll hand Him the pieces. Again, he can make evil become a way of grace, just like when he said to, Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In Paul's words in Philippians 3.21, he said he will bring everything under his control because the Lord has the power to do it. We may limp like Jacob after wrestling with God. We may limp like Jacob all through our life. We may be broken by God because of our past. But in eternity, a wise and loving God will give us back what we so foolishly threw away. Verse 5. He said, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Gentleness is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Galatians 2, 22, uh, 5, 22 and 23. One of the gifts. The word gentleness speaks of patience. And one of the best examples <clears throat> of this gentleness is when strife came <clears throat> between Abraham's herdsmen and, and Lot's herdsmen because there wasn't enough pasture land for all of their flocks and cattle. And so instead of arguing over who gets what piece of land, Abraham says to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen because we are brothers. He said, hey, let's not argue in front of each other and our herdsmen. We're Christians. He simply let Lot have his own way. If there would have been a battle between these two groups of men, Abraham and Lot, and Abraham's uh, herdsmen and, and Lot's herdsmen, it would have been a bad witness to the Canaanites and the Perizzites that were there too. Abraham's solution was a good witness. And I love what David said in his Psalms about gentleness. He said, of God, your gentleness made me great. Think about that. Of all of the things that he said about God that could have made him great, oh, your power, your, your wisdom, your gentleness. I love that. You know, he never saw Saul as his enemy. And Saul for years was after him and trying to kill him at times and just do him in. David said, God, your gentleness is what made me great. Again, what a, a great lesson to learn about the gentleness of God. Patience. It works miracles. And we need to remember that the context here of verse 5, where he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. He's speaking to the ladies. It's referring to the, this context is referring to the, the conflict between the two women. Paul was urging them to be selfless, and he added, the Lord is at hand. Notice, let your gentleness be known to all men, the Lord is at hand, because God is coming soon. That's what he was saying. 
He was urging the two ladies to be selfless because the Lord is at hand. That means the Lord is coming soon. Think about it. Would you want to be raptured while you're in the middle of a, bigger, big, a, a, a bitter argument with another brother or sister in the church? Rejoicing in the Lord is Paul's usual instructions for a happy life, but expecting the second coming of Jesus is his instruction for a holy life. Would you want to be raptured while doing something questionable or being somewhere questionable when the rapture came? Paul understood the power of holy thinking, so he made the Lord is at hand his motto for everything. Hey, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Verse 6. That's why he said, notice, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Jesus taught us this first in Matthew 6, 25, when he said, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat what you're going to drink or wear. That's, that, there's more to life than those things. He said the Gentiles or the unbelievers were busy, busy worrying about these material things, what they're going to eat, drink, what they're going to wear. But those who know God the Father or as their Father should be busy worrying or looking about and concerned about the affairs of His kingdom. And all these other things will be added to them because God knows we need them. Too many Christians live in a terrible state of anxiety. Always fretting over the concerns of life. Future things. Things that they have no control over. Make a list sometimes of the things that you worry about and what you have control over and what you don't. And you'll find out most of those that you can't control is the longest list. The future belongs to God. The future is God's territory. And when you begin to go to the future and worry about the future, which you have no control of, you're trespassing. The future is God's business. The secret of living in perfect peace in the middle of a hectic pace of daily life is one that's well worth knowing. What's the secret? What good has worrying done for you? Has worrying made you stronger? Does worrying make you smarter? Has worrying made you healthier? We know that it doesn't help us in health. It gives us ulcers. Worrying gives us headaches. It gives us anxiety. It upsets us. Has worrying helped you do God's will? Has worry helped you to escape anxiety or confession, or confusion? Does worrying solve the problem? Does worrying help you sleep at night? Worry only destroys the effectiveness of our lives that would otherwise be useful and beautiful. Being restless and having worries and cares are totally forbidden by our Lord. Psalm 37, 8 says, do not fret. That's a command. When he says, do not, it's pretty clear. He says, don't do it. And then he tells you why. It only causes harm. It only causes harm. And we know that, medically speaking. 
Paul doesn't mean that we shouldn't think ahead or, or never make plans. He simply means that we're not to worry about things. Regarding worry, Dr. Peter Marshall said, among Christians, ulcers are their badge of, uh, is the badge of their faith. Think about that. Among Christians, ulcers are the badge of their faith. People will know that you live in a constant state of anxiety just by the look on your face and by the tone of your voice and your negative attitude, the lack of joy and the lack of zeal in your life. It's a sign of weakness to always worry and to fret and to question everything and to mistrust everything and everyone. What do you gain by it? We only make ourselves unable to do anything and we cripple our minds from being able to make wise decisions or to think about anything at all. We're simply weighed down in our thoughts when by faith we could live above our circumstances. We're not to worry. Paul said here, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Now, God already knows what we need. He already knows our requests even before you ask Him, but He loves to hear us ask. Now, we don't know how prayer works, but God gave it to us so it would encourage us to go to Him. He longs for us to come to Him. He loves for us. He longs for us to come often to Him, and He loves for us to stay a while with Him. He longs for us to talk to Him. He longs for us to tell Him all about our troubles, all about our needs, and to make our requests known to Him. Jeremiah 33.3, Jeremiah said, Come to me and I will show you things that you don't even know. Come to me. It's like he's pleading. Please come to me. I want to show you things that you don't even know. How would you like it if every time a stranger came to the door, your child would ask, oh, you know, we need some food or clothes and, you know, could you help us out? You'd tell your child, son, you don't have to ask a stranger for anything. If you need anything, ask me. I'm your father. That's how God feels. If you need anything, come to me. I'm your father. Nothing dishonors God more than begging somebody else for what is his responsibility and his joy to provide for us. Churches and ministries that depend on constant begging, men that really dishonors God. He's not poor. It dishonors his name. It dishonors the work of Christ. It makes him look poor. We're to come to God about everything. Our Heavenly Father is interested in every detail of our lives, no matter how small or how big. He says, tell me all about it, child. Verse 7. The result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Understand the peace of God isn't the absence of problems in your life. We think the peace of God is not having any difficulties in life. The peace of God is not the absence of problems in your life. It's the presence of God's sufficiency in the midst of your problems. 
What can, what can disturb God's peace? Could some happening anywhere in the universe disturb his peace? Do you think whatever's going, all the crud that's going on in the world right now, wars and rumors of wars, do you think it's disturbing his peace? Do you think he's, you know, though he never sleeps in slumbers, I say, do you think he stays up at night? Think he's worrying about it? No. Because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Nothing can happen anywhere that he doesn't, that he doesn't know about. He's right here. No matter where or what time. Could some devilish thought of Satan disturb God's peace? No, because God is omniscient. He knows all the clever schemes of the devil. Can all the power of Satan and his host disturb God's peace? No, because he's omnipotent. He commands galaxies and, and he creates atoms. He tossed the stars into space with his fingertips. He holds all the planets whirling around at unbelievable speed in the orbits by His Word. By His Word. There's no physical, moral, or spiritual power that He doesn't rule over, neither in heaven or earth or hell, now or ever. Nothing can disturb the peace of God. The incomprehensible peace of the God who controls the universe is the same peace that Paul commended to his Philippian friends and to us this morning. This is the peace that kept Paul's heart from troubling thoughts and emotions. Paul wasn't talking about some theory about positive thinking, about having a good attitude that really has no effect on real life at all. It was a real working principle of the Christian life. Paul was a living testimony that the principle really worked. It was the secret of, of his calmness in the Philippian jail and in Caesar's jail. How, did this, how does this principle work? He said, through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. We're not kept in this perfect peace through redirecting our thoughts and again, thinking positive things or through a determined heart, but through Christ Jesus. God's peace was established in Paul by the indwelling Christ. Paul experienced the peace of God because Jesus lived his life in Paul. Jesus would live his life in the Philippians too if they would let him. And he's willing to live his life in us as well. Satan would love to take, our, take away our minds. He would love to take away our hearts through the storms of life that we go through the difficulties that we have. on, But God offers his peace as a defense to stand and guard against all attacks. So in closing, Daniel gives us a wonderful example of this peace through prayer. When the king announced that, that none of his subjects were, was to pray to anybody except the king, Little old Daniel, he went straight to his room. He opened his window just like he always did and he prayed just like he always did. Listen to how Daniel prayed. Daniel 6, 10, and 11. He prayed and gave, th he prayed and gave thanks before his God and he made supplication. Same thing that Paul said to do here in verse 7. Verse 6, notice, be anxious for nothing, but everything, it, no, it, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
Daniel prayed, gave thanks before his God, and he made supplication. You see, it resulted in perfect peace in the midst of difficulty for Daniel, as well as for Paul, as it will for us as well. Daniel was able to spend the night in, with lions. Probably use them as pillows and blankets. He was able to lay down at night with lions in perfect peace while the king in his palace couldn't sleep. The first requirement for the secure mind in victory over worry is right praying. Right praying. When it speaks about prayer here in verse 7, it's, it's any, all, all kinds of prayer. It's praying about everything. Supplication is praying about specific things. Maybe a specific person with a certain problem or a specific thing you're going through or, or whatever it might be. And then it's thanking him. Thanking him. For past prayers answered, the ones he's answering now and the ones he's going to answer tomorrow. And for all things, thanking him. Paul said to thank him for everything. All things. That's right praying. Making our requests known to him. And right praying is what God answers. So Paul, again, gives us here what it takes to receive that peace that passes all understanding. Father, once again, we thank you for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for how you leave us these wonderful instructions, God, and and how to live the Christian life, Father, the godly life, Lord. And it's through Christ Jesus. In the Lord, he's the secret to all of our needs, to all all of our difficulties, Father. So, Lord, may we take this, this lesson to heart, God. May we stand fast, stand firm. May we not be afraid of anyone or anything. The only thing to be afraid of is, is again, just disappointing God not wanting to disappoint him, but to honor him through the way we live and standing fast, standing firm and thanking him for all things. Father, we thank you. May you bless our time now in communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.